Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. This is Dr. Grant Stuckey. Today I'm joined by Dr. Myron Tucker. He is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, private practice in North Carolina for 18 years and retired back in 2009. He has been very prolific with his involvement in research and literature and has written over 10 textbooks. Dr. Tucker, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for asking. Yes, you're kind of, um, I guess you could say, an idol of mine. Back in the day when I was doing my you know, training and things, I attended several of your lectures and listened to your lectures for my board preparation and just uh, always loved not only the information you're giving, but the way you presented the information was very palatable and easy for me to understand. So I really appreciate that. First of all, if you could just give us a brief kind of rundown of you know what you've been involved in lately and maybe a little deeper history of your own training and practice. Sure. Well, take it from the start, I went to Baylor Dental School. And when I went through a school on, on a Navy scholarship, so I had applied for oral and maxillofacial surgery. This was in the pre-match days. I had been accepted to uh, several programs, but the Navy wouldn't give me a deferment because they thought they needed general dentist a little bit more. So I ended up being in the Navy for three years, but it turns out that I spent all my time basically in an intern position in oral surgery places. So that, that was good. When I got out of the Navy, I did my oral and maxillofacial surgery residency training at uh, the Medical University of South Carolina. And when I finished that, I was fortunate enough to get a faculty position at the University of North Carolina. I was there full-time for 10 years and part-time for a couple more years and maintained an appointment with both the orthodontic and the surgery departments there, even till I retired. So I did a lot of research with them, interacted with them in a, a, lot, of, a lot of different ways. Really enjoyed my time in uh, academics, but had a super good opportunity to go into private practice. So I moved to uh, Charlotte and uh, went and practiced with, when I first started, there were just three of us, Dan Spagnoli, who's a well-known name, myself, and uh, Pat Coleman. We grew that practice, brought in a few more surgeons, and even though I was in private practice, we had a, a really intense academic setting. We always had at least one resident from either North Carolina or LSU that was with us. We have a fellowship there. Dan Spagnoli and I were heavily involved in research the whole time during my uh, almost 18 years in private practice. We published five textbooks, about 25 or 30 refereed publications, and brought in over $2 million in uh, grant money for, for research. So uh, even though it was a private practice, we were probably doing as much academic stuff as a, a lot of oral and maxillofacial surgery programs. And then, unfortunately, I have a, an eye condition. I'm not going blind or anything, but it's called keratoconus and irregularity of my cornea. That just kept me from having the visual acuity that was good enough to be able to do the kind of surgery that I was doing. My practice was almost exclusively orthognathic surgery. 
And one day I was at my ophthalmologist and um, he said we had spent about two hours just trying to get this corrected, just kind of a sidelight. The way they correct keratoconus, you have a very irregular cornea and they put a hard contact lens on to kind of flatten your cornea so that then they can correct your vision. If it's not too severe, it's not that difficult. But as your cornea gets more irregular, if they put not enough pressure, you can't correct your vision. If they put too much pressure, you get a lot of corneal abrasions. So I'm at this two-hour appointment. August in December of that year, I already had 30 orthognathic cases on the books. But my ophthalmologist puts his hand on my shoulder and says, you know, I think you're going to need to stop practicing surgery. And so I said, what, phase out over a, a year or two? Or he said, no, I think you need to walk into your office tomorrow morning and tell him you're done. So it was a pretty, pretty abrupt emotional end to uh, that portion of, of my career. So that's the history of my practicing career. Since then, I mean, we can talk about this a, a little bit more about other activities, but I'm still involved in a, a couple of different things. I'm the science and education liaison for the Osteoscience Foundation, which is a, a foundation that's dedicated strictly to trying to fund research and educational events related to regenerative medicine in the head and neck area. So I, I manage all the grant aspect of that and help set up the educational events. I usually traveled to pre-COVID. I was going to 15 or 20 medical centers a year. Absolute cutting edge research that I was getting to see, stem cells, uh, micro 3D, nanotubule printing, just the way technology is evolving. So Still heavily involved in that. I am also a consultant with Stryker Surgical Instruments, so I'm involved in their medical education team and still do some lectures and cadaver courses. I'm also working on the team to help develop or to convert all of their instrumentation from uh, corded electric stuff to battery-operated things, and so that's been a kind of a big, big project for me. And um, I just do some uh, consulting for other groups, and I still keep busy. I, I don't do surgery anymore, but I'm still heavily involved in the profession. So that's that's kind of how it's gone for me the last 35 to 40 years. Oh, that's awesome. Very, very cool. It's rare to hear of an oral surgeon who just stops practicing and retires and then has nothing to do with oral surgery anymore. And you seem to have a passion for the specialty. It's really cool that you're continuing to help the progress of everything. Well, there's, there's two aspects to it. One is it occupied almost consumed my life at, at some points and uh, you know it's a profession where you know they say if you love what you do you never have to go to work and uh, you know I just loved what I I did so I wanted to stay involved and uh, you know as it turns out some of my very best friends are people that uh, I've been associated with through the the profession so you know I, I needed to stay involved just so I can see my friends and uh, you know, a sidelight to that is last year, such a strange year with COVID. And I really, I just hated missing all the meetings that were canceled because again, that's the time you see your friends once or twice a year. And uh, so kind of went, went a whole year with, you know, you can do the Zoom and talk on the phone and all, but it's just not the same as being there with them. So. Well, good. You know, most of our listeners across our country and even internationally are younger surgeons, dental residents, dental students. I think a lot of them have a lot of interest in orthognathic surgery. You know, what advice do you have for, you know, the young resident or surgeon who wants to make orthognathic surgery a significant part of their practice? Um, how, how do they do that? Because it seems to be getting harder and harder over time. 
Yeah, well, there are a couple of key components to that. We can talk about the the financial aspect and how to make it affordable in, in a minute, but I get asked this question a lot. And when I was in Chapel Hill, when I first got there as a young faculty member, Bill Terry and Ray White and Tim Turvey were famous, busy surgeons doing orthopedic surgery. So I was given three assignments. One, I was uh, in charge of all the anesthesia for the, the residents. And uh, we did a lot of uh, research projects. We were one of the first universities in America to test Versed and also the, the first one of the first places to test Romazicon in clinical trials. So I did a lot of anesthesia. I was the co-director of the head and neck pain program. Uh, if you look at some of my earliest research and papers, they were uh, a lot of uh, TMJ stuff, autogenous tissue repair and all. But my third uh, obligation was to manage one third of the dental facial deformity program. So there I am with Tim Turvey, Bill Terry, Ray White, and uh, had the great privilege of being around Bill Prophet. It was obvious to me that, you know, I wasn't ever going to be any smarter, any more experienced than these other three guys, but how was I going to build an orthognathic surgery practice? And what I realized very quickly was that everybody that does surgery knows a lot about the surgery, but they know very little about the orthodontics. And I always compare this, if you look at the best prosthodontic practices, if you ever go listen to a Mike Block or a Dan Spagnoli or Tony Sklar, Craig Mish. These people know as much about the prosthetics as they do about the surgery. In fact, they probably know more about the prosthodontic aspect than some of the prosthodontists or general dentists that they work with. So they're helping kind of lead them through this. And I just started thinking, well, if I learned more about orthodontics, that, that would help me. And uh, I was fortunate. There's a guy named Paul Thomas, who I think everybody probably recognizes that name. But Paul had been in practice in oral and maxillofacial surgery for 10 years and decided to do an orthodontic residency. So he came to Chapel Hill and he started his orthodontic residency at the same time that I came on as a junior faculty member. And we were both new people in, in the in the university and we struck up what's been a lifelong great friendship. But I decided to just tie myself to Paul's hip for three years. And every time I could go to an orthodontic seminar or go to the clinic and see things, even help, I've learned how to braces on and take them off and just learned a lot about the mechanics of what orthodontics really is. So when I talk to orthodontists now, when I either on the phone or I write them a letter I always say that most oral and maxillofacial surgeons know three three things about orthodontics. They say, please align, level, and coordinate the arches. They don't know how that happens. They don't really even know what that means, but they, they say those words. Well, I know all that stuff. And when I talk to orthodontists, I tell them, we need to take out a second molar on the right side and a first molar on the left side, and we're going to need to do this. And I think we should use this kind of appliance. And I'm pretty specific. And a lot of people would say, don't, don't orthodontists get kind of offended that you're just kind of telling them what to do. And I say, are you kidding? They're just, you know, they're glad to have some other, other input. So back to your original question, the two things that um, you have to do in this day and age, I think, if you really want to have a practice that as a large component, doesn't have to be exclusive, like mine was essentially exclusively orthodontic surgery. But if you want it to be a very large component, one, you need to learn the orthodontics. So go get Bill Prophet's contemporary orthodontic textbook that's used all over in undergraduate and graduate programs. Read the book and you'll know 
more about orthodontics than most surgeons, and you can talk with your orthodontist. The second thing is it's gotten expensive and um, hospitals, the way hospitals charge for things, you know, you hear about the $6 Tylenol tablet and cases where I've seen hospital bills where literally eight or $900 worth of bone plates and screws has been jacked up to $7,000 on the, on the charge. So uh, we built out patient surgical facilities, got triple AHC approval. And our idea was not to make money off of the facilities per se, but to be able to offer patients orthodontic surgery at a reasonable price. In other words, I could still charge my full fee for an orthodontic surgical case. As far as the supplies and all, if a plate, bone plate was 50 bucks, we charged them $50. We charged for all the shoe covers and the local anesthetic and drapes and gowns and all. But in a, it, let's just say a typical sagittal osteotomy case where you're using six screws on three on each side, pretty simple case, you might only have $300, $400 worth of supplies. You charge your surgical fee, you can make it affordable for, for a patient. I mean, people pay eight or $9,000 for a facelift, never think about, you know, needing to have insurance coverage or whatever. So you kind of make it affordable to patients. Uh, I grew up without, um, my family didn't have a lot of money, and I always thought, well, I wonder what they would have said if they said, well, Myra needs to have jaw surgery. But So we made it such in our practice that we we could actually do this surgery at a, at a reasonable fee. Then an interesting thing happened where I had a couple patients that I planned them for surgery, but I wasn't in their network because we weren't participating with any networks. So they went out. Another guy in town operated on them. They both had bad results and needed to have revision surgery. And both of them were very aggressive parents who went back to the insurance company and said, you know, we really wanted Dr. Tucker to do this surgery, but you kind of made us go to this other person. And now we've got a bad result and we need to go back. So I reoperated on both of these patients. Well, the first guy that operated on him, he got paid like $1,500 or $1,800 per job which is ridiculous. But he racked up a thirty-five dollars or $40,000 hospital bill because it took him like three hours, four hours to do the surgery and the patient's in the hospital for a day. So I do the revision surgery and we charge them like $11,000. We even charge a couple thousand dollars surgical facility fee. And the insurance companies call up and say, what's wrong with this equation? How can, how can you do the same operation for a thir- third of the cost? I just say, well, you know, we're efficient and we're not charging you a thousand dollars for a $200 bone plate and this and that. And, and ultimately we had uh, three insurance companies that sort of came our way and said, Hey, if you can contain the cost like that, we're willing to pay your full surgical fee if you'll do it in your outpatient facility. So the combination of knowing orthodontics and being able to make it affordable for patients, I think are the two keys right now. If you can do both of those things, you'll build an orthodontic surgery practice. That's really helpful information. I think, yeah, it can seem daunting to a lot of young guys coming out because it seems like, at least in residency, we only really do the orthodontic surgery if it's the patient has Medicaid and, you know, it's covered under that. And things like that. But I like how you're bringing up, there's a lot of alternative ways to do it, especially if you have your own facility and people helping you out that can reduce the cost. And the other thing is uh, you have to be patient. You know, these guys, we have these fellows in our practices. I'm not in the practice anymore, but I still, you know, I'm on their website and I consult with them and I go up and do some work with the fellows and residents once in a while. But I always tell them, 
when they leave because they're all interested in developing these kind of practices. So you have to be patient. You really have to have kind of a five-year plan because, you know, it's going to take you six months or a year to really get yourself introduced to the orthodontist that you work with. You got to get them to trust you to send a case or two your way. It's going to take a year, year and a half to get that patient ready. You're going to operate on them. And then by the time the braces are off, you know, that whole thing's a two, two and a half year thing. So you're already into three and a half, four years. And you got to do this a few times and uh, repeat some good results. And, you know, in about the fifth year, you got this group of seven, eight, ten orthodontists that say, hey, yeah, this this really works great. And all the patients come out great. And, you know, it makes their life easier, too. It allows them to treat difficult cases and end up with great results and everybody looks good. So that's a good point as well. It's more of a long-term play when you're starting out to kind of get things rolling. Are there, and I'm not sure if you, you know, are still observing guys doing orthodontic cases, but when you were kind of training and doing that stuff, you know, were there one or two things that you saw of the new surgeon who's practicing technique type stuff, you know, that you think most guys don't get until later in the game? I guess the question is, do you have any power tips for guys starting out doing surgery? You know, it's always good to uh, work with somebody that has a little bit more experience than than you do for, for a, a while. You know, there are some people out there that have pretty busy practices that are kind of in my age group and are kind of uh, ready to retire. You know, those are special opportunities. If you're a young guy coming out and you can land in one of those practices, you work with somebody. A good example, um, I hired Brian Farrell to come into our practice uh, because I thought he had a real interest. He had done really well in the six months he had rotated with me. And we worked together uh, for about six years. I was hoping it was going to be more like 10 or 15, but my eye issue kind of halted that. But by that point, Brian had done enough stuff with me that, you know, he just picked up on all my little technique things. And it took a while to get all the orthodontists that were referring to me comfortable with Brian. But when I had to stop my practice suddenly, as I mentioned earlier, the good news was that everybody thought, well, hey, we got this other guy, Brian Farrell, that he's, he's just as good as Myron. So we're, we're, we're okay. But um, it's just, it's good to be with somebody that, that has a little bit more experience. And you don't, you don't have to do, you know, 2000 thousand cases, but uh, I I average, you know, somewhere between 200 and 250 cases a year. So if a resident came and spent four months with me, they usually did 50 or 60 cases. And if you do that in a four month period of time, you know, there's a lot of rep- repetition. We do a sagittal osteotomy at 730 in the morning. And if they kind of didn't get the cut just right uh, at 1030, they had a chance to try it again on a new patient. And just one of those things, practice helps. The other thing is if you ever have an opportunity just to go in the OR and watch somebody do things, I would frequently even, you know, near the end of my career, I've been in practice 25 or so years and had done 3,000, 4,000 osteotomies, I'd go someplace and give a lecture and they're doing a double jaw case the next day and I'd hang around and go to the operating room, just watch them do it. And I'd pick up a little tip. Oh, I like the way they use that saw or oh, yeah, that's a good way to, you know, put that instrument in there. So um, you can learn until the last day you're in practice. Oh, that's a great point. I really love that. So many guys doing different things and it's so helpful to see other people, their techniques and uh, to learn from them. Well, that's tremendous. I think switching gears and just talking a little bit about how your practice ended and that health issue that you dealt with, you know, what did that teach you? And I guess more importantly, what advice do you have for younger guys 
to prepare potentially for those problems. You know, as you start to get near the end of your residency program or you're early in private practice, people are going to come and they're going to try to sell you all kinds of insurance. You know, they want to sell you practice overhead insurance and they want to sell you life insurance, particularly and disability insurance. But the most important of those, in my mind, is disability insurance. Because if you are in an accident or you develop an illness that creates a situation where you can't work, but you're not dead, that's a problem. Life insurance, you can get life insurance pretty cheap. And, uh, you know, if you get killed in a car accident or develop a disease and you're pass away in a, in a few months, you know that your family is going to be okay and all because there's a big lump of money coming your way. But a, a lot of people just don't think so much about the disability insurance part. Then if something happens, you like woodworking and you cut off your thumb or something like that. You know, I mean, I, I've seen just about every permutation of things that can happen to you. A common thing for oral and maxillofacial surgeons, because we work in such bad posture positions, people develop uh, cervical disc issues and start to develop some neuropathies in their, their fingers, you know, have some numbness or, or whatever. So you have to pay attention to all those things, but uh, in terms of posture and, you know, you, just your physical well-being. But ultimately, for some percentage of us, something's going to happen to keep you from being able to practice. So I think number one, disability insurance is super important. Get as much as you can. Pay for it personally. Don't pay for it out of your corporation. If you pay for it out of your corporation, the money's taxable. Um, I paid I paid for mine personally. And so I get a pretty nice check every month. And um, I don't even get a 1099. The government doesn't see anything about that. It's uh, just completely tax-free. So that's a really important point. Uh, I had a couple of uh, partners who used to just like to, if we got bonuses at the end of the year, they would just have the practice pay for it. But fortunately, none of them have become disabled. But if they were, they'd be paying taxes on that money. Get as much as you can. And then, you know, also just have a good good financial plan. I'm not independently wealthy, but, uh, you know, for the first 10 years I was in academics, you know, I wasn't making that much of a salary, but, you know, I was putting away as much as I could. And the university had a matching program. And um, you just try to be uh, conscious about about that. Put as much money in your 401k as you can or whatever kind of retirement programs you you have so that, you know, you're going to potentially have have that to supplement, you know, something if you're disabled. And then, you know, that gives you the better you do the not like we want to get out of this profession early. I would probably would have practiced till I was 75. But if you do well and you think you've had enough and you're 58 and you've done done well, you know, maybe you can go to halftime or something like that. So, you know, good, good financial planning. Can't can't say enough about that. And then on a non-financial aspect, I think your life needs to be diverse enough that if something like this happens, you have a, other interests. Now, fortunately, I like we had talked about, I still have a lot of involvement in oral and maxillofacial surgery and do a lot of things. But I'm also um, playing probably the best tennis I've played in in my life. I play a good bit, play some golf. I live in a wonderful place, uh, Isle of Palms, which is a suburb of Charleston, South Carolina. So the beach is two blocks that way. My boat and two kayaks and two paddle boards are 100 feet across the street. I ride my bike to the tennis courts. And, um, you know, I just have a lot of good recreational activity things to do. And my wife and I 
do a good bit of traveling. Uh, I travel a lot with the foundation and a lot of times we'll use that as a jumping off point. We might have a foundation meeting in Switzerland and we take that, go some other places in Europe or, or whatever. But uh, you just, I know some people that really their whole life is oral and maxillofacial surgery. And if that was taken away from them, they, they wouldn't have a clue of what to do tomorrow. I, I had a ton of other things that I was interested in and that helps a lot too. So, yeah, those are great points to bring up. And I think, especially when you're young, you think you're Superman and you don't oftentimes give priority to some of these things to prepare for, you know, tough situations that can happen down the road, but that's invaluable. It's very easy to say, well, I don't think that'll ever happen to me, but you know, it, it does. So that's exactly any other words of advice you have for young guys coming into private practice or even going into academics. No, I just, uh, you know, I think it's important for you to just do the things that you like to do and do the things that you're, you're good at. And if there's one area that you don't particularly like to do, probably ought to eliminate that from your practice. Give you two, two examples. A lot of people don't, don't like TMJ patients. You know, it's just, they're hard to manage. And if you decide that you're going to be involved with it a little bit, and you know, you see Mrs. Jones name on your schedule that day, and you know, she's been this chronic pain patient, and you just get this sinking feeling, what you should be doing is just saying, well, we're, we're not accepting patients for that and find somebody in your community that actually does it. And some people actually like to do it. I myself really didn't like to do implants. Occasionally, I would do like a single tooth implant on a mom of an orthognathic surgery patient, something that was just a chip shot that almost nobody could mess up. You know, I talked about this routine about knowing so much about orthodontics and communication with the orthodontists, and I had that down to a science. Um, that wasn't a talent of mine with with prosthodontists. I hadn't really really developed that. So the whole workflow for an implant case for me would just not have been comfortable because I never really took the time or the energy or put into it all that I thought you needed to do to, as I mentioned earlier, learn about all the prosthetics and all. So I basically, I might put in two implants a year, like I said, on these uh, cases. Otherwise, I refer them all, all to my, my partners in my practice, even if the patient's mom said, no, no, I definitely want, I want you to do, I want you, I say, you don't want me to do this, really, you don't. (laughs) So do the things that you really, really enjoy and uh, you don't get your practice too, too narrow, but uh, just stay with stuff that you're good at. That's good. I think advice to help keep good passion and kind of sweep away the stuff that discourage you from, from working, you know, because I think a lot of us try to take on the whole world and half the things we're doing and seeing are just kind of, you know, not so interesting and kind of a pain in the butt. Well, we end every uh, podcast with four rapid fire questions. If you're okay, if I give those to you. Is this like David Faraday? You ever watch his show on uh, the golf channel? He had some funny rapid fire questions, but all right, shoot. (laughs) No, well, these are pretty simple. The first one is what is the best book you've read in the past year? I just finished a book, I can't even tell you the author's name right now, called Say Nothing. I like to read uh, nonfiction mostly. Uh, I mean, mostly just fiction, kind of suspense kind of things, because I do so much scientific reading and uh, realistic stuff that, you know, I I just like those uh, 
those kind of advent, adventure books or mystery books. And uh, this one was called Say, Say Nothing about a judge whose children get kidnapped in a and they're going to give them back in exchange for certain verdicts. It was pretty interesting. Okay, cool. Well, something to look up. Next question is, what non-oral surgery thing did you do in the past that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? I do a lot of uh, woodworking. That translates in ways that you almost can't even believe. I know some uh, and worked with some really, really talented surgery people. But when rigid fixation first came out, they didn't understand the difference between a lag screw and a position screw because they'd never put two pieces of board together where they wanted to really squeeze them together. And just, you know, boiling it down to some of the crude points, a lot of what we do is just carpentry. You're sawing stuff apart and you're screwing it back together. And really a lot of what I learned from woodworking translates to uh, what we do in the OR. You're the first person to say carpentry, and that is the same for me because I grew up doing a lot of woodworking, and it's the same, you know, the the whole concept of measure twice, cut once, and just so many applicable principles. Implants, of course, especially with drilling a pilot hole and putting the implant and the torque and all that is very much carpentry for sure. Next question, and I know you did mostly orthognathic surgery, but if you had to remove tooth number 14, which forceps would you reach for to take that tooth out? Well, it's not really a forceps. It's an it's an elevator. I'm drawing with the blank right now, but the three-pronged, what's, a, what's that? The three-pronged, like the 90, or there's, there's different numbers. So what's the, net, what, what's the number of the elevator? See, I haven't taken out a tooth in so long. I don't even rem- remember. Forceps, but, you know, two prongs that go on the palatal side and one that goes on the buckle side. And, um, you know, when I was, was teaching undergraduates, I'd always ask them, you know, is this a forceps or an elevator? And they'd always say, well, it's a forceps. And i say, no, it's not because it's not grabbing the crown of the tooth. It's <laughs> elevating the roots. So can't believe I don't, it caught me when a blank right there. But, the, but, that's, but that's what I'd use for tooth number 14. There's all sorts of different forceps as well. But yeah, proper elevating Things like that kind of are very important. The last question is, well, actually, I had another question for you before that question. I know in your lectures, you were always showing pictures of sailboats and seemed like you had had some pretty cool boats in the past. What has been the favorite boat that you've owned or ridden in? Well, you know, they always, uh, a boater saying is the two happiest days are when you buy a boat and then, then when you sell it. Um, I, I've actually, I've, I've had, you know, six or seven boats and I've li- literally loved every single one of them for, for different reasons. Mostly I show sailboats, but I, I had a, a bigger power boat called, uh, East Bay Express. It was, uh, 40 feet long and, built in what's called the down east style but it was very beautiful it was navy blue and had lots of teak on it and it just looked like a piece of furniture it was a it was a boat that when i came into a marina and tied up people used to just stand there and kind of gawk at, at, at that that boat right now we have a little 25 foot center console we have all these beautiful little creeks and estuaries where we can go with the boat and we see dolphin and just all kinds of wildlife and gives us access to certain places if I could only have, you know, one one boat and, you know, if I was in the Caribbean, I did, I just love big sailboats, 45 to 50 foot monohull sailboats. And I had a 45 foot Beneteau that if you 
listened to my lecture. They used it in the movie The Jackal, and um, that that's probably one of my probably my favorite boat. That's so awesome. Boating is so fun. Cool to be out there. By the way, you know, I uh, most times I give a lecture, large group of people. I'll get two or three people that'll come up at the end, and um, a lot of people will have a technical question, but I'll I'll have quite a few people come up and say, "Hey, I really really enjoyed seeing the." Uh, slide pictures. And my, my idea is, you know, sometimes like at the Denver Review course, I lecture for seven hours. I started at eight, eight in the morning and lecture till 3.30 in the afternoon. And that's just too long for anybody to concentrate on one thing. So through that day, I show over a hundred pictures of wonderful places in the world or different boats. And um, I just, you know, I'll, I'll lecture for eight or 10 minutes and then give somebody a 15 second vacation and kind of take their mind off it. And then we get back to the subject. And, you know, I, I think it's a good educational technique. I think it helps people just kind of get a little breather and, uh, and people seem to really, really enjoy it. And uh, I recently gave a lecture, some of the oral surgery staff, they have to sit in the back of the room and do the registration and take care of everything. And these two women came up and said, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years and we just hate just about every time we have to do this. It's a once a year lectureship. He said, but yours was really good because we just loved seeing all of those places and the boats and everything. So multi-purpose. That's awesome. That's what I um, loved about your lectures as well. There's something to be said for you know, the content and, and that you're presenting is very important, but then also the, the manner of presentation, the way you're administering that information is also very important because if you give great content, but you're droning away and no one's really paying attention, it's not like it's really received, but I appreciate how you did yours. And the last question is, what is your favorite quote? Do you have like a quote or a mantra or something that you kind of come back to in your life? I lecture a lot on complications and Dr. D. Champlain my mentor used to say, don't be too critical of mistakes you see other people make because if you're in practice long enough, just about every complication that's happened to somebody else will happen to you. So I, I think that always helps keep you uh, humble. If, so, if something happens, doesn't mean you're stupid or you had bad technique or whatever. It's just you know, you do enough of things, it's going to go wrong once in a while. So I always try to keep that in mind and uh, try to have my residents keep that in mind as well. So Yes, I love that. Learn from the mistakes and try not to be too hard on other people for their mistakes, for sure. Well, good. Yeah. Dr. Tucker, thank you so much for taking this time. It's very been very helpful and enlightening for me and I think will be for a lot of our listeners. Thank you, Grant. I really appreciate the invitation. I enjoyed talking with you this morning and um, Send me send me the link so I can uh, I'll let my wife listen to it. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of the day. All right, you too. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode. Bye.